tell us about your background in real estate just to get us started. Okay, so I actually started real estate about five years ago. And from there, I've just been growing. It was, it's been a slow start, but after I really learned a lot of the basics and I cut up, like I cut a lot of the bad stuff out that I didn't know at first, such as uh, the problems with repairing properties, I really picked up and started to grow. My background in real estate, I started about almost three years ago. Um, I, I primarily just deal with res residential sales. Uh, started with Berkshire and Hathaway, and now here at EBG Properties. Um, my main focus is, is the consumer. I'm just trying to um, relate to the consumer. Um, you know, trust is everything when you're working with somebody in the real estate business. You have to be able to. The consumer has to be able to trust you that you're looking out for their best interests. So that that's my main focus is just trying to build that connection and with the person and. Um, really genuinely help them. Yeah, I feel I feel that way also, because at the end of the day, the consumer is the most important person. And a lot of times in my situation with investing, I'm helping people out that are stuck with a, a problem that they don't have a solution for. So I'm offering solutions to people that you know they don't know where to go when they get stuck with a property that's been in their family for so many years, or they inherited a property. They just don't know what to do, so I step in and offer a solution. And a lot of times, uh, people just don't know the next step to do with their properties. So we have multiple solutions for them to get out of their property. And sometimes they might keep their property, but a lot of times people are so behind in debt, they just need help and they need someone to come in, purchase the property and take it off their hands. That makes sense. What are some of the challenges you face with that? Uh, some of the challenges that I face dealing with properties, especially like located in the inner city of Pittsburgh, is a lot of people have back taxes on their property and a lot of people have liens on their property. So sometimes you run into properties that have more bad debt than the properties are actually worth. Okay. And like A situation like that, it gets kind of hard for me to find an investor because I try not to purchase properties that, you know, are in debt. In, in that situation, um what would you do in that situation? Are you able to give the potential investor any uh, closure on if those taxes and stuff are going to be cleared? Yeah, a lot of times what I could do is reduce the sale price by the amount that's owed in taxes. Okay. And it kind of gives the investor incentive to purchase the property. So instead of paying full price for the property, they'll pay what the seller wants minus the back taxes. So it kind of like equals out. Oh, that's cool. Does that work out? Have you done that in the past? Does that work out well usually? It usually works out pretty well as long as that property has some value. But in like some neighborhoods like North Braddock and McKeesport, when you still when you sell houses in those areas, the property value is just so low that yeah. you cannot really make a deal happen. Because at the end of the day, you want everyone to be happy. You want the seller to walk away with the money that they want to make, sure. the buyer to walk away with the good investment property. And of course, you also want to make a profit off this situation. No, that makes total sense. What's your buy and hold strategy? What do you, how, how do you usually acquire properties? Um, usually, I try to find properties that are already cash flowing. So when I walk into the situation, I'm not upside down. Okay. And I, I like to find properties that don't need too much work, properties that we could just move right in. And if anything, just a little bit of paint, maybe some carpet. 
And so through the marketing that I do, I come across a lot of properties that are already tenant occupied. So sometimes the people that I reach out to through cold call, they have uh, tenants in the properties, tired landlords, and they just want to get out of the property. So there, there's sometimes I could come into a situation and reevaluate the tenants and give them incentive to actually pay rent on time. Because you know, if your tenants don't pay rent, a lot of times you don't want to deal with them. Sure. And if you've been dealing with that for 10, 15 years, you just want to get rid of the property. So I, I run into a lot of tired landlords throughout Pittsburgh, and I'm able to actually, you know, give the landlords motive to sell. So how do you do that? How do you how do you come up with a strategy uh, to incentivize the the tenants to to, to pay on time and, and, th and things like that? Just gotta talk to them. So I like to talk to the tenants every time I purchase a property. I'll come into the property and I always meet the tenants. I see what their current living situation is and I see why why aren't you paying? Because a lot of times people have the money to pay, but they just feel like they don't need to pay. So I figure out what's going on. If maybe they might be upset because the refrigerator's leaking or repairs. Repairs or they feel like, you know, the person I bought the property off of was a slumlord. So if they're a slumlord, that automatically makes the tenants uncomfortable. They don't want to pay. They sure. feel like they're not entitled to pay. And I solved the problem. So I, I just try to solve the problem all over the board. And sometimes I'll increase the rent. And But I'll also do repairs that justify a rent increase. Sure. Because one of my guys from Texas, I'll actually be down in Texas at the end of the month. Nice. He's uh, hosting a, a class, a builder's class. So I'm looking to get into development, starting looking to build houses oh. from the ground up. That's cool. So I'll go down there, go down to Houston, Texas, and I'll go take his class and see where it takes me. That's pretty sweet. So um, can you touch on wholesaling a little bit? That's something I've already, always been interested in. For anybody that's new to it, and uh, you try to give like an explanation, um, uh, like the most basic explanation you can for it. So wholesale is a strategy, just like uh, buying holds a strategy, flipping is a strategy. Wholesale is a strategy that a lot of people use to build their capital when they first start out in real estate. Okay. So I could explain it to you a little bit. So you got A, B, and C. You got A would be a seller, B would be you, and C will be the buyer. Okay. And you leverage in between a motivated seller and a hungry investor so you can help each of them accomplish their goals. So sure. the seller's goal is to sell the property and get from under it. And the buyer's goal is to acquire properties that make sense financially. Sure. So I find the motivation in the seller. I figure out exactly what the buyer wants and I leverage in between so everyone can walk away happy. Sure. And so in, in, in to do this, you don't need a real estate license, correct? You don't need a license. That's pretty interesting. From the things that I've read on wholesaling, it's always been such a controversial topic. I've heard so many back and forth um, what, what people say about it, and um, I've always been very interested in it. So it's, it's cool to hear it from you like that. I like how you use the example A, B, and C, and you're B, because you're kind of the middleman in the situation. In between, you get a wedge in yeah. between that makes a deal happen. and. You just gotta be clear. You gotta have a clear line of communication. You gotta let the seller know what you're doing just as much. You don't want no one to think that you're taking advantage of them. Of course. Because a lot of times there's that gray area 
where if you don't explain yourself, there's a lot of people out there that are sneaking around doing wholesale. Yeah. And they're trying to disclose what they're doing and they don't want the other party to know. And it's just not good business. Sure. So I like to be really upfront with the seller, let them know that we're offering a service and the service would be for us to connect them with the buyer and help walk them through the process. And if you get walked through the process, it really makes you more comfortable. And another perk of us wholesaling is there's no fees to the seller. We take care of all the fees. We pay their closing costs, uh, their transfer tax. Oh, so really? They could really just walk away with exactly what we told them. And they, they really like that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, what, types of, what type of commission do you get from a wholesale? Well, technically, it's not considered a commission. It would be a, a termination fee. So I get paid for terminating my contract. Okay. And the buyer will pay that fee. So I let the seller know, no fees to you. You're completely covered. You're going to walk away with exactly what you want to walk away with. You want to walk away with $50,000, and it makes financial sense if the comps match, the work match that needs done to the property, and no crazy liens pop up on the property. Sure. You'll walk away with exactly what you want to walk away with. So it's the buyer then that compensates you for bringing him the deal. Correct. That's interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. I'm doing a service for the buyer and the seller. That makes sense. That's pretty cool. It's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of leverage and a lot of communication. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a lot. So how do you think that relates to being an agent? Um, I mean, definitely in similar ways. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of the middleman when you go into do a listing appointment um, and get the get the listing from someone. I'm kind of the middleman representing the seller, um, trying to kind of almost doing the same thing, trying to find a buyer for that person. Um, just you know, to to do what I do, I have to have that license under me. Yeah. Um, but similar in a lot of ways, for sure. It's definitely similar, and that's why a lot of people confuse real estate wholesale with being a real estate agent. So a lot of times people will ask me, are you, are you an agent? And I let them know, I'm not an agent, I'm an investor. Sure. And if I don't want to purchase your property, I have a list of multi, not multiplied, but qualified buyers that will step in and purchase your property. Because, sure. you know, these situations, when I come into them, I'm actually looking to purchase and acquire more properties for myself and for my team members that, that purchase properties. So it's like both sides of the fence. I could either buy myself if it makes sense. And for a deal to make sense to me, I wanted it to be, like I said, I wanted it to be moving ready, to have tenants cash flowing in a halfway decent neighborhood. Sure. And if it doesn't fit my criteria, I could always pass it along to someone else that might be interested. And it might make more financial sense for them. That makes sense. So what areas do you specifically focus on? What neighborhoods, any specific neighborhoods that you focus on when you're looking for properties? Right now, I've been focused in the Swissville area. It's right off of, uh, what is it, Parkway 376 East. Sure, yeah, very familiar. I feel like the connection and how close that is to the Parkway, you could get anywhere when you're in Swissville within 15 minutes. You could get downtown, you could get to Moreauville, you could get to the west side sure. within 15 minutes as soon as you cross the tunnel. And I feel like that's extremely convenient when you're looking for a home to buy. How accessible is the property? How long is it going to take me to get from here to here? And that's it. And location. It's safe now, too. Yeah, location is everything. 
And I feel like a lot more people are buying in the inner city, and the inventory is extremely low right now. Of course. So people are looking to move on the outskirts. If they, they might not be able to afford the suburbs, but Swissville is affordable living for the average family in America. $150,000 houses to $250,000, which is pretty affordable for people that are working yeah. nine to five if you're getting a 30 year mortgage. That's the sweet spot. Yeah. So the buying pool for the people that we actually sell the properties to is pretty big. So I feel like there's not going to be a shortage of buyers anytime soon. I feel the same. Like even if there's a recession, $150,000 for a 30 year mortgage is, is going to be pretty affordable for a lot of people. Very true. Very true. Yeah, that's kind of been my focus with, um, especially for this year, um, just seeing the lack of in inventory. And I mean, I'm working with buyers right now that are super frustrated because they put multiple offers in on places and, and, they, get and they get beat every time. Yeah, and it takes a few times for someone to really learn, okay, the market is the way it is. I'm, if I really want this house, I'm gonna have to go over asking price. And it, it takes a, f a few losses for somebody to really realize that. Um, so my main focus for 2021 is to try to get as many listings as I can, not only for my buyers, but just to increase the inventory as much as possible. But I'm only one man, so. You're only one man. Yeah. yeah. That just happened to me this morning. We got outbeat on a deal. We didn't even get a chance to be put the offer in. We got beat before we put the offer Oh, no, I, I've had that happen, too. They, yeah, that uh, sucks. They accepted highest and best offer last night at 9, and I thought they weren't going to accept highest and best offer until today, so. It was a nice property, and I, I kind of felt like when I walked in there, mm -hmm. I seen it from the outside. It was it. The pictures on the MLS didn't look that great, but when I actually like walked in the property, I looked and said, "This is immediately going to be a good property." Because sometimes, if it's nice, it doesn't need much work, and it's in a good area. You could use the uh, flipping strategy, and you know, put the money into it and immediately sell it. Sure. Because you know it's going to sell. You know it's going to sell, and that's how you you build capital even faster if you're not looking for the monthly cash flow very true so is that what you try to do are you primarily i know i know you said that you were partial to the buy and hold um but do you do you take strategies like that to try to just build your capital now and then yeah i do if there's a good deal and i see the profit margin is going to make me something close to what i'm looking to make i'll go in i'll put my team in there we'll flip it we'll do the rehab and then I also have an agent in the company, and he'll list it, and we sell it, and go on to the next one. Pull your money out and go. Yeah, pull your money out. I know a lot of people uh, are pretty big on doing the bird strategy right now. You yeah. With that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a uh, bigger pockets. They preach. They preach the bird strategy. They do. They buy, rehab, uh, repair, refinance, and um, they're pretty big on that. We're yet to start doing that strategy. But eventually, I have a couple partners that are looking to do the birth strategy so we can build larger portfolios. Gotcha. So is that your two main sources of um, how you build your capital then is, is um, the flipping and wholesaling? Flipping, wholesale. Gotcha. Uh, That's I interesting. I also have a mentorship. So I run a mentorship program, and I also do one-on-one -on -one coaching calls. And that really helps the beginners get from point A to point B. And a lot of people, it's not that they don't have the money, it's that they're scared and they don't, they don't know what to do with the money. So I really yeah. help people to work their money and make their money work for them as opposed to going out and buying a, a, a dump for $100,000. Of course. 
I'll offer people multiple different strategies so they can keep their capital in the bank or keep their money growing wherever they have it growing at so they can still purchase properties, acquire properties, and then they're making money at the same time. So I'll give you an example. Instead of spending $100,000 on one rental property, there are situations where I could offer a strategy to a client of mine where they could get four properties for that same $100,000 and just make that work for them. So you have four properties for the same price of one property. Sure. But you might have some debt on the properties, you might have some leverage on them, mm -hmm. and uh, this strategy will be called owner financing. Okay. And that is, I basically see if the seller, the motivated seller is interested in carrying a note on a property over a term instead of, you know, sometimes if you're a seller, you don't want a chunk of money. I know a lot of people think, oh yeah, if I had that money, this is what I would do with it. Mm -hmm. But there's older people that say, if I had this money, I wouldn't know what to do with it. It's just gonna earn minimum interest sitting in the bank. And this, like a lot of people, they use their properties as like a retirement vehicle. Of course, So it's a big one. Yeah, I'm offering the sellers a solution. Well, how about this? Instead of me giving you $100,000 all at once, how about you get $100,000 over the next 10 years in, in the form of a steady payment that's guaranteed by note. And they're like, oh yeah, that does make sense. So they get the consistent payments coming in and they also still get to keep, but they don't keep the property, but they keep the note. Sure. So if you were to default, then you would be responsible for giving the property back. They could still foreclose on you. I got you. So that's just one of the strategies that, that I would offer to someone that, that's looking to acquire a property. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah, I have not heard that way before. Yeah. Sometimes we just got to take it outside the box. Is that, is that almost considered, because I remember kind of vaguely reading or watching a YouTube video, is that considered note buying? Is that what that's considered? Um, no, it wouldn't be note buying. And note buying would actually be that's when another buyer comes in and, and purchases the whole note. This would be more seller finance. And so sure. sellers just carrying a note instead of going to a bank. And in return, the seller, they could put interest on this note, try to make it fair to whatever the competitive rate is. Okay. You could also make it a little bit higher because you don't have to go, like the buyer is not going through the bank. They don't have to deal with the credit check. All they have to worry about is, are you able to put X amount of money down to get the process started and pay X amount of money each month to keep the process going? As long as you can keep that money going, the sellers are usually happy and every everyone walks away happy. So. That's what it's about, just keeping everybody happy. Yeah. So would you rather have one property for 100000 or four properties? I would rather have four. Four, four cash-flowing properties is way better than one property, especially if they're low-maintenance, Sure. happy tenants. You could just keep going all day. So yeah, that I, makes, that's something I teach. That makes way more sense. If there's any first-time home buyers that have any questions, that's kind of my, my bread and butter is helping people that have not bought before. So feel free to ask questions about that. Um, that was one of the main reasons I got into real estate was um, when I bought my house, I had an agent that just wasn't that knowledgeable. And, and I felt like I could, if I had a more knowledgeable agent, I would have made a better decision on the house I bought. You feel like they just kind of just tried to push the sale on you maybe? Uh, yeah, I felt a, a little bit like it was being I was being pushed into it. Um, I think I only looked at three houses before I ended up. That's it. Yeah, so now I did have a good understanding of where I wanted to be and what kind of house I wanted, um, but I just felt like 
if my agent had been more knowledgeable on certain things that I probably would have uh, bought a different house than what I bought. So that was kind of what put, after, after that, I started doing a lot of research and um, just felt like this would be a good fit for me and I just wanted to, wanted to be there for somebody in my situation, so. So did you grow up in the Pittsburgh area? Um, so I grew up in the suburbs. I was, I've always lived about 40 minutes north of um, the city. Okay. So 35, 40 minutes. So, um, you know, in Pittsburgh all the time, very familiar with the city. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's my main focus now is primarily Allegheny County, Butler County. Um, I personally live in Lawrence County, so I focus, I do Lawrence County too, so. Yeah, there's some pretty nice houses out there. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can find some nice ones out there. Um, you know, you get more bang for your buck out in the, out in the suburbs. Yeah, you get a lot of house for a lot less than you would in the city. Sure. And like in Lawrenceville, people are paying oh. 400000 for for row houses, and you literally don't have any. Great point, for great point. And, uh, I just don't understand it. So one, one of my long-term goals in five years, I'm looking to get to Texas. And I feel like Texas, you get the bang for your buck. If you go to Texas, yeah. spend $300,000, you got a mansion, nice pool, huge backyard. I, I have family that lives in Texas. I heard that's the um, the cheapest place you can live. I think that's the cheapest. I think that's where um, you can buy a gallon of milk in Texas. I think it's cheaper than any, anywhere else, if I do remember correctly. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty affordable out there. And I feel like the business that I'm in, I'll be able to take my business with me. So it's not like I'm going to be missing a beat. I'll be able to not take my business but I'll be able to restart my business fresh in Texas and keep my company here running still running sure still making money while I'm in Texas and I'll essentially be doing the same thing I'll just duplicate this business bring it down to Texas and keep the ball rolling that's the way to do it because you already know your model works yeah so then you just take it to somewhere else and expand scale it up that's cool I, I can't wait because that's exciting. I won't have to be cold. Like up here, it's freezing cold. This morning, I didn't even want to leave the house. <laughs> it is freezing. I just feel like you got to find that motivation. There's, there's got to be something to look forward to for people to just keep going every single day. Or you're not, you're not going to want to go if you don't have anything good to look forward to. No, 100%. Yeah, you got to set yourself goals and, and obtainable goals and, uh, you know, do things that are going to make yourself feel better about what you're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my hopefully, my, I'm, I have a similar goal to what you have, a um, little more, more modest, but uh, the main, main reason I started doing residential sales was just to acquire, you know, build my, um, my capital so that I could start investing in properties and eventually have some cash flowing properties like you yeah. said. And um, I mean, that's the goal. Everybody just wants to be able to have some money coming in, um, you know, to feel stable and if, um, you know, have more time on your hands yeah, to focus time. on new things. Time is good. So is that like one of your one year goals or five year goals? Um, so I guess long five-year goal would be to have at least three 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 income producing properties um, that, that's highly possible yeah yeah I feel like that's super obtainable at this point in my life um, so I'm hoping to uh, to buy my first investment property uh, next year at some point in time okay next year that's a yeah. good goal uh, do you have any specific areas or property types in mind <sighs> I really haven't gave that much thought yet um, you know, I'm I, like I focus more on residential sales, but I do know s some things like as far as you know uh, how you classify certain neighborhoods is like C neighborhoods, D neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know to focus kind of on C neighborhoods. C neighborhoods are um, good. You get a bang for your buck out there. Sure. A nice sure. Cash flow. 
So like McKee's Rocks, I think I heard you mention. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I know that's a good one. Um, Carrick, Brentwood. Yeah, Carrick's on the rise. Brentwood's also pretty stable too. I feel like the difference between an A neighborhood and a C neighborhood, it's like equity versus cash flow. What do you want? Sure. Do you want to make your money on improvements at equity or do you want to make money monthly on a cash flow? It's a good point. It just it really depends on you know you gotta really plan what you want and just sure for it. And then you, you're also dealing with the uh, when you're dealing with the C and D neighborhoods, you have more turnover as compared to spending more money in maybe a B or a B neighborhood where the school districts is a little better and stuff like that. But then uh, and you'll have longer term tenants, but then you're not making as much money, right? Exactly. It's like you gotta kind of like weigh it out because sure. that actually started like. In uh, the D neighborhoods, what a lot of investors would consider the war zone. No way. And, uh, what what neighborhood specifically? I started in Duquesne. Actually. Okay. I started in Duquesne, then I went to McKeesport, and it, it's just like I just kept trying, and I, I didn't say I failed, but I kept running into situations that made it harder for me to get my money. Sure. And there was one time that I had bought a house. And the person next door had lit the house on fire and their kids were still in the house. What? So it's like, yeah, I really don't like the fight to get my money. I like situations that are a lot easier. So I learned a lot. And it's like when you start investing and you put all your money and all your time into it, you kind of just want to see what is going to be the quickest return yeah. when you're starting out. If you don't yeah. have any good guys, so I was like, so what's going to give me the quickest return? Sure. I just put anyone into the property. I didn't screen them. Oh, no way. No no background check, anything. I just, uh, you got the rent check. Uh, you can move in, sign the lease, and, and that was it. And So I, I learned from my mistakes, and I'm still learning from other people's mistakes. And so I'm here to really help people not make the same mistakes that I made. That's cool. I mean, and you need that too. Like, you know, it, you can only read stuff online for so long before you actually need an actual person to talk to, yeah. you know, and that makes you feel more confident for sure. So have you thought about investing out of state at all? I have not, no. That is... Um Something I might consider in the future, depending on um, how involved I get into this. Okay. Um, but I know my company has has uh, considered Philadelphia, and we've been trying to get some properties over there. Um, I think I think Elise said that she was mentioned in Texas too. I yeah, think she's. Nice. I think she did talk about Jacksonville. Florida? I know that. Florida. Florida. Okay, that's right. She was talking about Jacksonville, Florida. That's correct. So does Elise? Does she also invest? Uh, yeah, yeah. She's actually got an investment property right now that just um, it was. It's going to be a flip that okay. she just did. Um, I'm trying to remember what area that's in. Uh, it's on Concordia Drive. I want to say might be Carrick. Yeah. I want to say it's, yeah, it is Carrick. Um, oh, like she make her money back? Yeah, she did a really nice job on it. It, um, it was, I think she scooped it for around 30 or 40, um, completely renovated the entire thing. And uh, she's, she's, I think it's on the market already. That's good. Yeah, she just had me comp it today, so. So you guys get to like cherry pick any deals that you want. That's like the good thing about being an agent is before you put it on the market, you can decide if you want to buy it yourself or. Very true, very true. Yeah, if we come across those off-market deals, 
um, you know that's that's another great thing is we being a, a property management company as well as a brokerage um, we just have a lot of access to tons of investors yeah. so that's yeah, and off-market deals so a lot of the people that you guys deal with are investors like the, the property yeah. that you managing sure or you know, yeah. those guys are investors I, I I'm pretty sure they want to sell some portfolios and if they do yep you should definitely reach out to me oh we can do that for sure I would like to be the first person to know about it oh we could definitely um, hook you up with that That'd be great. Uh, since in the, I've worked here for a year, and I know in that time frame that I that have seen some investors unload their portfolios. Yeah, those are great. I would love to pick up someone's portfolio, and uh, it's not going to be easy. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, people don't unload portfolios unless they're about to die. I was just going to ask you that. I was going to say, if someone wants to unload their portfolio, what do you? What questions do you ask? to make sure that you're making a good purchase? Well, first I would ask, figure out what area all the properties are in. I would like to see all the rent rolls because a, a lot of people don't keep their rent rolls, but I'm pretty sure since they're in the management, mm -hmm. you guys will probably be able to help with that. But sure. I, I would check the rent rolls, the area, and just to see like all around, walk around at the property to see what the issue is. Yeah, to see if the property is cash flowing and you know, Portfolios are large. It could be a hundred units. So you really just got to get out there and get in these properties to see if they're worth it. Because sometimes people will, will put you know, a portfolio package together that looks so great on paper. And then you get into the property and you're like, wow, this is like a shithole. Excuse my language, but... No, like, I totally there's, understand. There's some landlords out here that had owned properties for 20 years and they haven't put a dollar into it. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. So is that kind of like a, just a good situation for you to walk into, though, when you see unhappy tenants and just a lack of somebody just putting in the time to keep the place livable and keep the tenants happy? Is that kind of your ideal situation to run into so you can just remedy that? That is kind of an ideal situation, but just because the tenants aren't happy doesn't mean that the, the seller is motivated. Sure. So I'm really looking more for motivated sellers is like instead of like said tenants because yeah the tenants are the ones that make your life easier of course and if you got said tenants it's going to be hard for you. <laughs> especially if you don't have a good property management company that could deal with the front line of you know who's in there or they paying rent because imagine buying a portfolio and then everybody stopped paying rent or imagine buying a portfolio and all the rent rolls were, were false and no one paid rent for the last six months. Yeah, then you're stuck. Yeah. That puts you in a hard position. Yeah, because I, I know some situations where people just don't pay rent. There was a, some properties in the Penn Hills area where the tenants just kind of like took over the property and they haven't paid rent in like two years. And two I, years? Yeah, I had a, a guy, he was trying to get me Cause I'm not a property manager, but he's like, yeah, I'll give you a hundred dollars each unit if you could go and turn around and get these people to start paying rent. Oh no way! And I'm like, I'm that's not a manager, and it's, it's not worth the time of. You know, that's with frustrating. Like that. Yeah, I could I could imagine that getting frustrating. I think it was Belmore Gardens. You look into it, and they're still vacant, and tenants were just squatting in there. No one's paying rent, so. 
No, I, I can relate to that. I mean, I show I'm a leasing agent as well, working here, and so I'm in rentals all the time. Sometimes tenant occupied, and you know, being the property management company, we always have to take any repairs that are needed done and stuff back to the owner, so they can write say, okay, go ahead and do these things. And you know, I'd say 90% of our owners are very good with us. On you know, if we tell them, hey, something needs done, they're not going to really question us, and they're going to let us do it. And they but, give you that green light. Yeah, they give us that green light. But when you get that red light and someone's like, no, I don't want to pay for that. Like, well, that's like a red flag. It, it, it is. Uh, yeah. Burn, it, it's, so. it's kind of disheartening because then you, like you said, you have unhappy tenants. They don't want to pay their rent. Yeah. You know, so. It's just like, I feel like the energy you put out there is the energy that you give back. And if you're not yeah. you know, making other people's lives good and making other people's lives easy. Very true. It's like, you're just going to get hell. So being a property manager, do you guys just keep a reserve account? for the repairs that are needed for the tenants? Yes, so um, we have an emergency hotline that they can call in. If there's something that needs done as, as soon as possible, they can call an emergency line. Um, other than that, we do have a system set up where they can email or call, um, and then that gets uh, directed to our repairs department, and then our, the repairs are coordinated with the uh, maintenance guys that we have, and then you know they're, they're sent out to, we manage about 600 properties, so they're out there every single day. They're out there doing, yeah. putting in work. So it's usually minor things. It's not usually anything real serious, but yeah. you know, it's like smoke detectors, smoke detectors, uh, batteries. Yeah. Do tenants ever call you for light bulb problems? Um, I have not heard that one, but I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> That's always my biggest fear is like, like a common area or something where something's hard to reach. Light bulbs won't come on. If, if anyone calls me and tells me that the light bulbs won't come, come on, it's, it's going to be a bad day for everyone. <laughs> Just, just change your light bulb. I'm not a bad landlord. I'm not. I don't have time to deal with. You know. Yeah, I can't come over and change your light, your light bulb. bulb for you. But I feel like, other than that, property management is definitely great, especially when you get a couple units under your belt. Yeah. How much do you guys typically charge for property management? Um, so typically to place the tenant, it's um, first month's rent. Okay. So we collect that. And then if you want us to actually manage the property, it varies depending on how big your portfolio is, the price, the value of the rent. Um, it could be anywhere from 7% to 10% of the rent. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely got to get some good tenants in there. Yeah. And we do have a vetting process too. We vet all of our you know, potential tenants. Um, main, we're not going to fault people for a low credit score, and I know a lot of companies do. Um, but we're not really focused on the credit score so much. We just want to make sure that you make enough money. Uh, you don't have any evictions within the last five years, and uh, that you um, uh, no evictions within the last five years. And then uh, we do a basic criminal background check. Okay, that's smart. Do you guys got any banking units right now? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, everyone on my live. Gotta talk to this guy. EBGRentals.com. That's where all of our active rentals are. We go all around the city of Pittsburgh, north, south, east, and west. Yeah, some good properties. Cause I get at least four or five uh, direct messages a day just on my Instagram of people asking, do you got any two bedrooms? Do you got any three bedrooms? I, I don't sure. have anything. All my units are completely occupied. Gotcha. So I feel like you guys will be able to step in and play some of these tenants and that'd be cool take take that off my back yeah most definitely i'll definitely start referring them to you guys how big's your portfolio uh, i've got about 10 properties oh nice personally that's not yeah. bad at all and you've only been in it for five years that's crazy yeah that's really cool i like that strategy um the seller finance yeah Save, saves capital less capital out of pocket it allows you to have more you know capital to buy other houses yeah and do repairs if needed so you got 10 buy and holds. 
right now. So you, you're running out. Yeah, they're all rented out. Oh, man, that's awesome. Stress free. Uh, now they're stress free, but you know, two years ago, I had I was still in the, the curve of getting bad tenants, and I had a four unit down in Moreauville. It was the worst property I ever had, and it was such a headache. But when I purchased it, I thought it was the best property. I ever was going bad. Oh, no way. Yeah, it was four units, a good school district in Moreauville. So I'm like, yeah, this is going to be it. Um, so I, I went in, I underbid the budget for repairs. So before I even, you know, had anyone in there, I was losing money. And it, it took me way longer to get people in there than expected. And when I actually got people in the property, there was unforeseen problems. Oh. Uh, the plumbing was was bad. Uh, uh, big expenses. Yeah, and it wasn't just like water lines. It's like the main drains, the stacks. Oh, you know, like this yeah. is this is thousands of dollars, and the people that I put in there, they weren't they weren't the best tenants. They were fighting. They would call the cops on each other. Oh, they would fight with each other. Oh. So every single day, I was getting a phone call from the inspectors, uh, the police. It was either getting raided or the tenants were fighting each other, so the cops were coming. And it was just to the point where I, I felt overwhelmed with this type of property, and I just cut my losses with it, and all the money I put in it, and I, I passed the property on to a friend. Did you? Did you sell it, or did you just I give it to him? Oh, well, no way, just yeah. didn't want the headache no more. Didn't want the headache no more, so I feel like a piece of mind is more important than the money that a property could bring you. So hey, like, it ain't like you didn't try. Yeah, I tried. Like, if, if you don't have a peace of mind, you're not going to be able to focus. You won't be able to be productive. So I feel like having a peace of mind is one of the most important things in investing in real estate in general. I think a, uh, a lot of people can learn a lot from you, too, just in, hey, don't be afraid to fail. Yeah. You know, you're going to fail. It's, it's inevitable. You, if you And you're not going to grow unless you do make those mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. And then to have somebody like you where, you know, somebody like me that's new to investing can come and ask you questions and feel a little bit more confident, I think, is everything. Yeah, I hope you build that confidence and bridge those gaps. Anything you don't know, there's someone on the team that does know it. I have qualified lawyers that they've been running Pittsburgh for the last few sure. years. So if there's anything that I don't know personally, I could connect you with a lawyer or a resource of someone that's willing to help. And, you know, they don't look at any question as a stupid question. Yeah. So, you know, some people sometimes they feel like, oh, man, I don't want to ask this question because I think it's dumb. Yeah. But, you know, what's common sense to me might not be common sense to you. Sure. So every question is a good question and there's an answer for every question. That's very true. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask questions. So something else about wholesale. A lot of people, they watch TV or they watch YouTube and they just assume that you could just make money overnight. They feel like. You just walk in, you get the contract, then they sign, and you get the money, and you walk away. <laughs> there's there's a process behind the money making. It doesn't happen overnight, and you gotta be in it for the long term. People aren't gonna get into wholesale, and they're not gonna start making money in a week, and they're not gonna make money in two weeks. You gotta give it some time to build your pipeline up. Oh yeah. In um, about thirty days, forty five days, if you get stuff under contract and you get good properties, then you can start making money. So I would expect at least 30 days before you see any return on your investment in wholesale. Sure. Now that's good to know for people that are trying to break into that. Money's not instant. It's definitely not instant, but a lot of like gurus, they'll tell you online, 
uh, join my course, I'll make you $50,000 in 10 days. It's I think that's what scares a lot of people off is seeing stuff like that because I know any research I've done on wholesaling, you run into a lot of things like that online that seems yeah. so like scammy or pitchy, yeah. you know? And Stay I, away from it. Yeah. If it's too good to tr too good to be true, it's usually too good to be true. So try to stay away from it. And like when you're making real money in wholesale, there's processes involved. You will, you know, every now and then you could luck up and get a good deal and make some money, but you got to know how to work the deal. You got to know how to negotiate with the seller. You got to know how to negotiate with the buyers because you got to think of it like this. A buyer wants the property as cheap as possible. Mm -hmm. You want the property as cheap, cheap as possible, but you also want your seller to be happy. But then you also want your end buyer to be happy. So it's like a lot of people, like you're, you're playing a balance game. Yeah, you really are. People's emotions. And uh, you don't want the buyer to try to take advantage of you because the buyer will tell you, I'll give you $50,000 for this property and it's really worth one hundred and fifty. Uh, you just got to stand, stand strong, you know, set your guidelines and tell yourself, I'm not taking less than this. Yeah. Even though some of the money will sound good, you don't want to, you know, pay yourself less than what you're worth. So you want, you want to really, you know, let these sellers, uh, let these buyers know that you know what you're doing. You got a good background and you're not just going to let anybody just sure. take over your deal because people will try to do it. And, um, uh, do you use facts to combat that, like um, co comparables and things like that, to just to sh show that you know your, what you're talking I about? This, I let the buyers know uh, when I send a property out to them. I give them a market analysis. I give them comparables. And, you know, some stuff you won't be able to find on the MLS. Yeah. And you got to have, like, actual experience to, to show these guys, look, I know Mr. Jenkins down the street sold his house for X amount of dollars. You can look it up right now on the county website. Mm -hmm. If you do this, this repair, this repair, this repair, open floor plan or, you know, new windows or whatever design model that you want to do, you'll more than likely be guaranteed to get X amount out. So sure. you can't, you know, try to outsmart me on a property's price, especially when you know what you're doing and you got the facts to back it up. I can, I can understand that for sure. And I feel like a lot of people they will get taken advantage of. Oh yeah, no. If you, if I can understand, if you were in a situation where you didn't know how to present those facts, that someone would take advantage of you, yeah. or try to at least. People will take advantage of you. They'll take advantage of the sellers. It's just like you just got to make sure everyone's protected. Yeah. And you know, I feel like, like I said before, whatever you put out there is what you're going to get back. So if, if you're putting out scams and you're taking advantage of people. And, you know, a lot of people feel like this $5,000 is going to change their life. So they'll burn you for, for $5,000, $1,000. But you could have made hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars if you stick around and ride the wave and, and do things the right way. Build the relationships. Yeah. Don't, don't take the quick cash. The quick cash will always, you know, sell yourself short. Yeah. It'll come back and bite you later. Yeah, it will definitely come back and bite you later. Don't, don't like, do it. Like you said, you it's, um, it's good to just be a genuine person. And I think that's why a lot of people I hear compare real estate agents to car salesmen. Yeah. I hear that comparison a lot. I do too. And um, I don't like it, you know. You know? No, I don't like it because, you know, everybody's different and I understand why people 
people make that comparison um, because there are some shady people out there. But that's that's in all aspects of aspects of life. You know, you're always going to run into some people that are not not being genuine. But so I think that's you know, if you're really trying to run a, a real business and we're all independent contractors doing this, um, you really got to try to be a genuine human being and and really connect with the person, understand their problems, and try to solve them. Just like what you're doing, yeah. Solve, solve them, solve the problems. And uh, where do you think that Pittsburgh is going to be in the next ten years with all that's going on? That's a good question. I mean, with everything that's going on with the the virus and everything, who knows at this point, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you just don't know. That's why I feel like I try to invest in stuff that's guaranteed. Mm -hmm. You know, because. People are always going to need somewhere to live. Very true. Regardless. It's always going to need a roof over their head. Always. No matter what. No matter where, you're always going to need somewhere to live. I'm wondering, I guess I'm wondering what the market's going to keep doing. Because right now, with it being such an extreme seller's market with such a low inventory and so many buyers and interest rates being so low, um, it's just going to be curious to see what happens because the mark—I mean—the market is being depleted every day. I want to check it. Yeah, I mean, definitely. there's way more houses being sold than there is houses being listed. That's so scary. It is. I, I feel like what's going to happen when the banks start collecting on the money that's owed. This is a good point too. That—that's what I'm. Yeah. Like, are we going to see or are we going to start seeing a lot of foreclosures, you know, this upcoming year I from like things that happened last year? You know, because a lot of banks been, uh, you know, they've been deferring mortgages, and what's going to happen when they call those mortgages due for for the last twelve months, eight hundred dollars a month? A lot of people don't have eight thousand dollars in their savings. And no. just, there you go, take this money, bank. Don't take my house. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Most people don't. Yeah, most people are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, which is which is kind of scary, and that that's another reason why I got into investing. So, before, well, not before, I started investing when I was working in the kitchen. So I used to cook in the kitchen, uh, minimum wage. I would make ten to twelve dollars an hour, cooking, washing dishes, and I just kind of got tired of working that dead end job, and I got tired of you know coming home from work tired to wake up again tired. Exactly. So it's like I, I had to figure something out. So I could break this cycle of just work, 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 work. And I found a way for the properties to work for me. So sure. even when you're not putting in physical labor, you're still making money off a of property when you're of sleeping, course. when you're eating. That's what it's all vacation, about. I'm still, I'm still making money. It's passive income. It's passive. So I had to find a way into real estate. And, you know, like I told you, I, I took the losses at first. And I know how to do it now, and I'm just passing that knowledge on to others so they can do the same thing. That's really make cool. Make money when you sleep, make money when you eat, make money on the beach. Just keep making money by buying properties. That's what it's all about. It is. And it's, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people will... It, you know anybody any anybody that talks about getting into real estate there's a lot of you know you me you have to put a lot of time in this business yeah. in order to make it work okay. and uh, some people might not want to do that but if you're working an, an eight hour a day job that you absolutely hate why wouldn't you rather work 12 14 hours a day on something that actually you like to do and you're seeing growth um, and it's your own and you and it's yours yeah. you know I mean me personally and I know you too I feel the same way I mean that's more rewarding than and then, uh, you know, making $12 an hour, feeling like nobody even notices you. You can't even do nothing with it. You can't even do anything with it, you know. But I think, I think a big thing about that is, like, taking that leap from 
being an employee to being an investor full time for yourself. Sure. Is that instant gratification. Like a lot of people feel like they need instant gratification. They feel like they need to get a reward as soon as they do the work. Yeah. And if you can't put that reward off for doing the work for, you know, some time, you're never going to be able to be financially free and really just take on, you know, life and be an investor. Sure. You have to know that and realize that it's just going to take time and to not be uh, discouraged, you know, that you're not making money right off the bat. You got to be able to bite that bullet. Um, I've seen one of these questions here. What was the simplest way to make your house more appealing to potential buyers? Um, so, you know, just from um, my standpoint on taking buyers in and showing properties, um, I come from a construction background. I did a lot of construction, plumbing. So I, I really try to focus on making people feel comfortable that the house that they're buying is is solid, has good bones. Um, you know, I can kind of touch on the plumbing, you know, CV, PVC versus copper, things like that. You know, just point out certain things that I notice just being in the construction industry um, to try to make people feel a little bit more comfortable about the house they're buying. Um, and of course, you know, finishes and things like that or appealing to people but I know when I was buying my house I wanted to know the foundation was good I wanted to know the plumbing was good you know just the, the bones yeah just all the bones you came from construction that's, yeah that's interesting that's uh, kind of why I feel like I can uh, make good connections with people when I'm out there because yeah. I, I do have a blue-collar attitude about myself yeah, construction like having a construction background is important so now if when you're in the properties with these sellers, you could actually, like you said, you can let them know what's going on. Like, sure. This plumbing is messed up or yeah. this will be better repaired. And I, I always wanted to do like full-time construction. That was like my dream. Man. Really? Yeah, I just wanted to be a construction worker. Just out there. <laughs> it sucks. It does. It sucks. <laughs> and you go outside, it's freezing cold. Yep. You gotta carry stuff because yeah, before so. you could be a construction worker, you gotta be a laborer. That's it. Yeah. Digging holes. That's like that's the ultimate test. Is like especially if they put you to work as the laborer. Yep. A lot of people can't make it past that stage. So. This is very true. It's but sometimes it's very hard work. It is. Especially, uh, I actually used to like lay bricks mm. and not man. That'll take a toll That's on your body. Lot, especially like carrying mortar around, carrying bricks around. <laughs> there's got there's to be an easier way. And I, I didn't pursue that future at all. No. It was a, a trade that I thought I wanted to do Yeah. until I had to do the work. Uh, yeah, kind of how I felt. My dad's a uh, a master plumber. He's a commercial plumber. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my whole life, I've worked with him a lot, like on the weekends and stuff, because he does his own side work. But um, just never been a job that I really liked that much. <laughs> Not, especially like in plumbing, yeah. You got like the heavy duty excavators and stuff. You gotta, oh yeah, dig a trench. Oh yeah, I, I've been in so many basements, jackhammering up floors, digging holes. You know, yeah, and I will build character right there. Put, yeah, put a kid in the basement with a jackhammer. <laughs> Keep going and hit the pipe. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah your, your forearms will be like three times as big by the time you get out of the basement. It's kind of crazy, but but yeah, all in all. I've really enjoyed being in the real estate industry since I've gotten into it. Um, you know, my fir that first six months being a new agent, maybe for anybody out there that's uh, 
you know, potentially thinking about getting their license and actually doing sales. Uh, the first six months was the roughest, um, just learning all the contracts and everything, just understanding how things work, how to structure deals. Um, that was like the biggest thing for me was just learning all that. Um, after that, then it was just about just going out and being yourself. And then did I you have a coach. I didn't No. And when I worked at Berkshire, they had like, they did, they had a mentorship program there. So it wasn't, I didn't really get a coach per se that I could call at any point in time, but they did hook me up, um, for the first five months that I was there, I believe, um, with another agent. So I was able to call another agent when I needed things. Like okay. when I got my first sale, you know, and I needed to fill out the contract, I was able to, she was walking me through it on the phone. Um, Berkshire and Hathaway, uh, you know, other big name bro brokerages, I think, uh, Keller Williams is one of them, um, have really good mentorship programs. I do recommend, uh, finding a brokerage that's going to have some type of men mentorship program for you so that you're not just flying by the seam of your pants. Um, it's definitely good to have somebody to talk to just as if you're a new investor and you need to, to advice and you're yeah. going to talk to him. Um, always good to have somebody in your back pocket that you can give a phone call to. That's the best. Yeah. I know a lot of agents that are out here they've been doing it for a year or so still haven't closed the deal oh I, I think the only reason I'm sitting here right now is because of Berkshire and Hathaway giving me that mentorship program yeah. it really helped me um, just not be so afraid of making those st first steps yeah, you know you, uh, fill out your contracts yourself yeah okay. yeah yeah that's good so you're just well-rounded and you know what you're doing sure so that, that's good, man. I feel I feel confident in my abilities to structure things in different ways. Um, I understand how all the contracts work. Um, so really, it's just about at this point for me, just really building connections and really getting people to understand that I'm I'm looking out for them, yeah. and I'm not trying to rush them into anything. Because yeah, <laughs> so everybody good. thinks that everybody thinks oh he's just trying to make a paycheck. But at the end of the day, most people buy like three or four homes in their life if you're just a normal person. Yeah. So that's a huge decision that you're going to make, and you don't want to rush into it not at all definitely don't rush into it and take your time That's it. because like purchasing a house is more than likely a person's biggest investment that they're ever going to make in their life 100 percent. the most expensive thing the most time consuming thing so like he said just just take your time don't rush it that's all you know people feel like uh even like on mass out like the investor side they feel like Real estate's going somewhere. Like, oh man, I gotta hurry up and become an investor. Yeah. By tomorrow, or my life has failed. But no. realistically, real estate's been here before we were on this earth, and it's gonna be here after we leave this earth. So Hundred percent truth. No rush. You don't gotta pull the trigger. You don't gotta jump into buying a house. You don't gotta jump into buying investment property. Just take your time. Get around people that know what they're doing. And don't just spend your money on anything. Uh, question, I feel like for a lot of first-time investors, how much money do you think you should have in your pocket for jumping into investing? How much capital? Uh, I'll give you a couple different situations. Uh, for capital, if you plan on becoming a flipper and you want to flip with all cash, I think you should have at least you know $100,000 if you plan on going all cash. But if you plan on going through a bank or you plan on using hard money, I feel like you should have $40,000 saved so you'll have the amount of money put up that you need to purchase the property. Because if you do a hard money loan, you put a certain amount, you put a certain percent up for the property and 
they'll match you for the rehab. They'll put the rehab money up. But you still have to have money for draws throughout. If anything happens that you know is not covered under your scope of work, sure. you'll still have to cover to get that property sold. So sometimes, like in my first experience when I was putting my money into a house, I underbid and you know I was using my own cash. So once my money was gone, my money was gone. But if I was in a situation where I was using a hard money lender, and you know I bid the job out right, and this is going to cost me. I probably should have budgeted for $100,000 for this property. Sure. But in my head, I was like, $20,000 is going to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was a rookie. It's four units. I just, I don't know why I just thought it was going to be a cakewalk. But if you use, you're using a hard money lender, you should have at least $40,000 saved in reserves, liquid, that you could just, uh, you know, use. Because you got to put money down for the purchase price. You got to pay for appraisal. You got to do inspection. And you also got to do the draws you got to pay per draw so you asked me um, how much money should someone have going in to buy their first home yeah. all right um, it's a really good question so depending on a lot of people don't understand how closing costs work don't understand that there's closing costs from the title company and closing costs from the lender um, a lot of people will talk to a lender the lender will give them a closing cost sheet but it doesn't include the closing costs from the title company um, so there's some there's sometimes people don't understand how much actual cash they need in their pocket to purchase a home. Um, working with first-time home buyers, I know I was in a very similar situation to not having a lot of expendable cash when I bought my first home. Um, there's different type of, types of loan programs that you can do as a first-time home buyer that allows you to not have to put that much down. Um, USDA loans is a loan that you don't have to put any money down, but you're kind of, uh, you have to pick homes that are in specific areas. Um, FHA, Common first home buyer loan, 3.5% of the purchase price down. And then right now with everything that's going on with coronavirus, um, conventional loans are actually really nice right now. Um, Citizens Bank is doing a uh, conventional loan, 3% down is all you got to put down. Um, they give you 2500 back and close towards your closing costs. And depending on if you meet certain criterias, you might not have to have private mortgage insurance. Um, so, I mean, for anybody that doesn't know, with private private mortgage insurance is um, if you're putting less than 20% down you typically have to have that um, but in this scenario if you meet certain you know, citizens guidelines you will not have to have that and that could be anywhere from a 50 to a hundred dollar a month payment on top of your mortgage that you're saving yourself um, so if I'm working with somebody that doesn't have a lot of money in their pocket I can and you're looking for a modest house maybe you're looking to buy something around 100 to 150 um, I tell everybody to try to have at least six to seven thousand dollars in your pocket and if you got that much money in your patient you could find something to make it work. Um, you're, we're gonna have to ask for seller's assist. We're gonna have to have the, the sell, seller pay some of your closing costs um, to get that out-of-pocket expense down. But with six six to seven is, is a pretty good sweet spot um, if you're not trying to buy an elaborate home. Okay, could you uh, go a little bit deeper into what seller assist is so, sure. so that people can really just know how important it is 
and how much you really save by getting, would you get up to like 6% on FHA? Yeah, six, so if you're doing an FHA loan, you're gonna get 6%. Um, a, 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 your, what the lender's gonna allow you to do, the seller to give you 6% towards the closing costs. So how seller assist works is, is essentially, um, you know, you're gonna make an offer on this property, say the house is $100,000, it's listed for $100,000. Um, if the market is, if the market's how it is right now, you don't want to just offer a hundred thousand and then ask for seller's assist on top of that. Um, you know, let's say you're asking for six percent seller's assist on a hundred thousand dollar home. You want to make that purchase price. You want to raise that purchase price to reflect the seller's assist that you're asking for, so that you're really giving the owner the actual cost of the house. Um, so. That's essentially how it would work in terms of that. Um, so you you know it, it, the the seller's actually paying that six percent towards your closing costs, and then whatever the remainder is is what you're paying at the table. And that six percent comes from the, the total sale price, correct? Correct. Com comes from the total sales price. That's a lot of money. And uh, conventional loans are three percent, and a lot of people don't know that either. You can't get that six percent on a conventional. It's a three percent. Um, uh, USDA, I believe, is six percent as well. And that that really comes in handy. It helps the buyers out a lot. So if it's a hundred thousand dollar house, you got three percent to six percent sellers assist. Assist that's six thousand dollars. Sure. Used towards your closing costs. And uh, I just sold a flip, and I gave the buyer sellers assist. And it's not something that people always want to do since the market is so hot yeah. on the seller side. Sure. But if you want to get rid of your property and you know the offer's good and they say they want three percent seller assist, give it to them. Make it up on the next one. That's all. You keep the ball rolling. And that's the thing. If you want to keep that money in your pocket, but you don't want to make the seller, um, if you, you know, in a market like this where it's so competitive and you're afraid there's going to be other offers on that, and you're afraid to use that seller's assist, increase your purchase price so that he's still going to give you. You're going to keep more cash in your pocket. You're going to have the seller pay your closing costs, but he's still going to net what he wants to net. So, I mean, you, there's there's different ways that you can do it so that seller's assist doesn't look so much like a negative. Exactly. I like. I really like that. And a lot of agents won't tell you that. So no, they won't. You're, you're good for that. You know, just keep letting your people know that they push for the seller's assist and get as much as possible. A lot of agents won't say that because it's harder to make a deal come together sometimes with seller's assist. Yeah. So they'll try to avoid the topic. But you know, it's all about trying to figure out the person's situations, what their needs are, and if your goal is to keep as much money in your pocket as possible, then I'm gonna to try to accommodate that. Yeah, I like that. So I usually market my properties uh, through word of mouth. I got a really big network of people that I have found over the time, for over the five years, people that I talked to that might be interested in, in buying properties. I always reach out to them first, especially the guys that supported me when I first started out that had been buying properties off me first. They kind of get like at the top of the list when it comes to me sure. selling any properties. I would reach out to my guys, my inner circle, uh, make sure that they don't want to purchase the property. And if no one wants it, if they don't think it's a good enough deal, go into the market. Going to the market. I like that strategy. I mean, you've already worked with those people in the past, and you know yeah. they're tried and true. So why not check them out first? They, they Keep them happy. Through. Yeah, and, uh, I would imagine they would. Yeah, a lot of times I don't have to, you know, go to the market. But if, of course, if I want like retail for a property and it's a, re a retail flip, and you know it's high end, I'll have to go to the market because there's not a lot of investors out here 
paying cash for primary residence, but sure. they'll pay cash for investment property because they're making money in return. I got you. Uh, how do you feel? Um, I know Grant Cardone. Do you know Grant Cardone? I don't. No. Grant Cardone, he's a like he's real big on YouTube. And, okay. Uh, he talks a lot of stuff online, and he's like a real big investor. But he tells people that owning a house is a liability if you live in it. How do really? you feel about that? Owning a house is a liability if you live in it. Yeah. Hmm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I don't agree. Uh, what I guess I would want to know what he means by that. Why does he feel it's a, it's a liability to live in the house because you are gonna have to make repairs yourself, or you're gonna get too attached to the home? I'm trying to understand that's what. That's what I want to figure out. Too. Yeah. What would make you think it's a liability? But I feel like I feel like if you're living in it, you're you know what what's going on all the time. It's your house. And it's security. It's security. Yeah. You could also use it as a bank. You know, when the time comes when you pay down your debt. Then you could pull out a HELOC on a property. Very true. So, the debt on my own home. Yeah. Yeah. And you can use that money and invest with it. Yep. A lot of people, they use it for vacation homes or second cars. Mm -hmm. But if I pull out a HELOC, I'm going to take the money and invest. Exactly. And then I'll, you know, I'll get the rewards in the future and take the money by another place. That's that's the way to do it. Is um, now, have you ever run into a situation where you bought something where you uh, you know in the next only in a year have gained a lot of equity and are able to take a decent home equity line of credit? Uh, you know, uh, not yet. Not yet. I never tried to refinance yet. Uh, okay. I'm not at that point just yet, but I think about it a lot. Oh, I bet I you do. Like you got ten properties. Yeah, when, I, <laughs> when I pull out some equity, it's going to be good. That's awesome. And I feel like now will be a good time to do it since the interest rates are so low. Everybody's refinancing right now it's crazy yeah, my title company said like since the corona they've been just on so many refis yeah and yeah it's getting pretty crazy i'm gonna do it soon no but i feel like i would do it when i really need it if there's a say a, a big unit multi-unit that i want I will probably cash out on properties that I own. Do something like that. Use that money to get the multi-unit. That's pretty smart. So it won't have to be like cash out of pocket. It will just be leverage from the properties that I already own. Yeah. Yeah. That's very smart. Then on the always on the, the home equity line of credits, you have them. You're I, most of them are you're just paying the interest when you're making those first payments. So your monthly payments super low, super you know. And if you can, if you're in a position where you feel like you can just get that paid off pretty quickly with all the money you're generating, yeah. then you know you don't really have to worry about it. That would be nice. I, I really just want a big complex. That's <laughs> the goal. Yeah, I just want a complex, like hundred unit <laughs> complex. All that would be sweet. And like. Because if you got all your doors in one place, it's taxed under the same property. Yeah, then, yeah. You know, Makes it easier. Having 100 individual single-family properties that mm -hmm. are all taxed separately. Yeah. You get a 100-unit complex, it's all taxed the same. Yeah, and that makes sense. I feel like, that's not like the specific number that I want, but just a large unit. Yeah. Why I want it. Is that what you're working your way up to with the single-family homes, just eventually to have enough expendable cash to, to yeah. grab a big multi-unit like that? Eventually. Like, if I find it, I, I look online, I see people post stuff all day. Uh, like, some, some of the uh, bigger investors, they post, like, portfolios, 100 units, 300 units. I'm like, man, <laughs> oh, man. just imagine having a high-rise, oh. complex. Uh, He's so uh, sweet. I mean, can you imagine just generating all that money just from one place? And that's Yeah. Good. It's, it's gonna be, be nice. Like, some sometimes you know they're a couple million dollars, so you gotta really 
put the money into it, but yeah, I feel like once you're there, you're there. You're there. You got it. You got to put it under property management. That's it. They make their money, get the best property managers possible, and just sit back and make your money. That's it. Only call me if my house catches on fire or insurance. <laughs> There's really no other reason to call for a property that, that I feel like under management. No, you're right. I, I think you should probably answer that better. Uh, no, it, you're you're absolutely right. If you're if you're putting it under management, that's our job is to make sure that everything's running smoothly. Make sure the repairs are taken care of. We're doing our seasonals, going out, and making sure the place didn't burn down, yeah. and just keeping you you know out of the, uh, only involving you if we absolutely have to to keep as much stress off your back as possible. Yeah, so you guys do like seasonal inspections. Mm -hmm. Yep. Good. Yep. We do four a year. So four a year. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. Yep. So you know for sure. Yeah, we want to make sure that everything's running smoothly and, you know, well, nobody. Typically, how would the inspection <laughs> go? Will it be just like a drive by, make sure it's not no, down? No, no. We're in there. Yeah, we have to notify the tenants, go in, take photos of everything. Um, then we upload all those photos to a shared uh, Google Drive that everybody has access to. And then, you know, they stay on, they stay stored on file. So you guys aren't just, you know, taking the money and collecting the rent you guys yeah. are in there yeah. taking the pictures getting i like that a lot and that's security right there so sure i could be in california and you guys could be in pittsburgh managing my property exactly and then we send you when we, when we ha upload those photos to a google drive then we share them with the owner so you mean you would get those photos and actually be able to see okay this is what the place looks like sometimes we take videos Do you guys give like a heads up to the tenants uh like two weeks or like you do like a 24 hour notice so the way we write our leases um most i would say 90 percent of the leases were only required to give 12 hours notice um but some you know depending on the situation are 24 hours okay, yeah. but i don't know of any uh, uh anything longer than that i'm pretty sure 24 is but like if you give them like two weeks notice oh yeah they'll be living like vikings and you know <laughs> If you give like a twelve hour notice, they really they can clean up, but they can't go too much into detail. Exactly. Yeah. You kind of like see how they live. Have this you guys uh, been facing a lot of evictions since the COVID happened? Um, so compared to other companies, we're doing pretty good. Okay. Um, our ratio is still pretty high. We're not having too many evictions, but we're definitely starting to see more now than we were at the start of everything. Um, but you know how it, it, the moratorium yeah. and everything is making it a, a, lot a lot more difficult to actually get people out that aren't paying their rent. There, there's some people that are really just trying to take advantage of the situation, uh, you know, and just not pay because they know they don't they don't have to um so you know you have that that kind of um, i don't like that part no i mean yeah i mean you definitely run into that um have, have you, what, what about you with your 10 properties have you experienced uh, anything like that yet not no evictions like people have been paying yeah but it kind of feels like they've been paying when they want to Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Like, uh, so nobody's like super, super behind though. Everybody's yeah, they're not super behind. There's no one that's more than a month behind. Oh, well, that's great. Like that's good. Half a month for, you know. Yeah, that's always I a little frustrating. A, a payment today. I'm like, damn. Yeah. You could, you can kind of feel the struggle. Yeah. But then sometimes, like, because I have like garages and stuff like that. I rent out garages. I'm like, maybe it's not a struggle. Maybe it's just them not wanting to pay on time because it's something extra like a garage yes yeah, so i feel like i might have to start enforcing more late fees and that might yeah because if you start getting hit with those late charges you might be 
Very true. Yeah, I think we're. Um, I think you have to pay us by the fifth of the month, and if you don't, you're assessed a fifty dollar charge. That's a nice chunk of money. Yeah. So Especially and that you and get with it a couple times. Exactly. And I think at, I I can't remember the frequency, um, but I know that does get doubled if it, if a certain amount of time goes by. Okay. So. So what are, what is grounds for eviction? What what would make you guys evict? Um. So. The main thing would be, you know, someone that had just hasn't paid, and you know, it's been it's been months now. The owner's been reaching out to us, um, trying to under trying to understand why he's not getting paid. Um, and then if we we can set people up on payment plans, we're we're pretty lenient with uh, you know, if you if you're trying to give us money and you're trying to pay us, we're not going to evict you. Yeah, so as long as you're yeah. willing to make a payment, you're trying. You're trying. Because um, we understand, but like it, it's tough because even when we set people up on those payment plans, and maybe you're making your payments, you're still your your, your balance is going up, yeah. you know. So it's tough. Uh, you know, I know we have some people that um, have been seven thousand dollars behind, and what do you do at that point other than evict somebody? You know, yeah. you're, you're really never going to be able to come up with that. Um, so it is a little bit sad, um, but we try to handle that in the best way possible in a professional way, um, as best as we can. But it's property management, so you know it's definitely has its uh, ups and downs. I got a question, a little bit off subject. Yeah, yeah. How do you guys feel about Airbnb? Um, Airbnb is cool. Me personally, I think Airbnb is a great way to. I actually had a property in Lawrenceville, a town, uh, two townhomes side by side next to each other, okay. and I sold one last year. Um, it was this was an expired listing that I got, um, and then the other one I was still trying to sell it. Was having a lot of interest in it because the one had sold, yeah. um, but then the owner called me and he just decided to try it as an Airbnb. So he's been having really good luck with that um, as an Airbnb. So he's just trying to, he really wasn't too happy on what he sold the townhome for because mm -hmm. I, when I got it, it was an expired, it was way overpriced. I comped it, I, I explained to him like, you're not gonna get anything over this for it. And he, he ultimately listened to me and went with my recommendations and it sold very close to what I told him it was going to. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you know, it, that, but that kind of, he because he didn't net what he wanted for it, he thought the Airbnb would be a good route to go so he could get just generate some income and recoup some of that loss and then throw it back on the market and sell it. So is he still doing that? Yeah, yeah, he's doing that right now and he likes it. That's so good. That's something I really want to get into is Airbnb. I think so for every city that I, I really like to travel to, I kind of want to get an Airbnb there. That'd be really cool. And I feel like, um, you know, when you have the Airbnbs, I feel like you still deal with like the repairs that you would with somebody running the place. But, you know, it's you're, you're just having someone usually stay there for the weekend. Yeah. So it's not going to be nothing crazy. You might have to go in on the weekend and clean up. Yeah, there might be a sure. hole in the wall or something, but it's not going to be nothing. If you stay up on it, you know. You got to because, uh, like you said, the weekend, that's... Two, two, three days max, someone yep. comes in, you have a team come in, check it out. There's a hole in the wall, you notice it. Fix it up. Yeah. And you have a little bit of time. There's been people making a lot of money off of Airbnb. Yeah. Because uh, you know you don't have to own the property to Airbnb at all. I did not know that, no. Yeah. You could, uh, Rent, you could rent a property, lease a property. That's crazy. That's a crazy route and to take. If the owners agree, you could go ahead and put it on Airbnb. Wow. A lot of times, uh, what would happen in a situation where you did that? You rented a place. The owners knew you were going to Airbnb it, and you were very successful. Wouldn't they be kicking themselves, thinking, "Why didn't I Airbnb it?" They might, but then at the same time, you know, you're giving them the money that they asked for. They're getting so they're happy anyway. Yeah, they're getting twelve hundred a month for like sometimes what people do is they'll offer them a little bit extra, a little bit of icing on a cake. Sure. So you're asking for twelve hundred. 
here, how about you let me Airbnb this property out? I got uh, 10 other units that are currently under Airbnb. Yeah. I'll give you 200 extra dollars a month. That's more than what you've been getting. We'll take care of all the repairs. That's pretty cool. we'll also, you know, make it nice. Yeah. We'll, we'll do small upgrades. We'll update the kitchen, maybe put a backsplash, paint the walls. So you're getting, you know, either way, you're getting more than what you were asking for. Sure. And you're getting your money. Huh. So that just kind of gives it the landlords incentives to put their properties on Airbnb or the Airbnb it out. So that's like one of the situations I've just been studying. Airbnb. Have yet to really pull the trigger on. Do you think that's going to be your next move? I think that will be my next move. I think that's going to be my entry point into Texas before I actually move like my wholesale business down to Texas. I'm thinking about getting one Airbnb so I can stay down there for a week out of the month. And I, yeah, we got it a month, and then for the other three weeks, I'll Airbnb it out to so okay. cover my rent. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That sounds like a really good idea. That's it. I think that's going to be it. And I've been looking at some nice places down there. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like the places that are nice down there, they're affordable. And if I wanted a nice place like that up here, yeah. I'd be paying an arm and a leg. Yes. And it might not make sense. And I feel like that's going to be my entry point to get me into Texas. And it's also going to let me, you know, network with people by being in a higher value area. Just the people that are surrounded in the area I could just talk to daily and see what they're doing and break my way into Texas. And that's pretty sweet. Just go crazy from there. Yeah, we had an Airbnb um, that the owner that owned it was doing an Airbnb with it, and then he decided to rent it. It was 53 Sterling. Do you remember where that was? Yeah, Southside. Southside. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you got all them college kids, and, I mean, dude, that thing was running Airbnb every single weekend. Every weekend. Every weekend. That's good. I don't even know why. And then he was renting it. I think the rent on it was 1350 um, It was a nice place. It's a big house. Um but I'm, I'm curious to know. I'm curious uh, to know why he decided to go the rental route on it rather than just keep it as an Airbnb because he seemed like he was doing really well with it. He might have got tired of doing the turnarounds. Like possibly, if you don't have a nice system down pack, just like anything, you could get like wore out. You'll get tired. You'll get burnt out because, like, you think about it. If you're you're turning it over every weekend, that means if you don't got a cleaner, this is you true. Got to send someone in to clean. Or, well, you got to send yourself in to clean. Yeah. And I hate cleaning. I don't want to clean. No, I don't want to either. I mean, yeah. I went in there. I think I showed it on a Monday once, um, and I was showing it to potential tenants, and you know they just had the Airbnb over the weekend, and no one had a, had a chance to go in there and clean. So it was kind of rough, or was it? It, it was. It wasn't bad, but you know, it wasn't. It wasn't as presentable as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So you know, it makes it a little more challenging, but it definitely does. Cause like people, the consumer. What they see is what they remember. Sure, you know, very true. For them to see the finished product, and uh, like when I sell properties and I'm rehabbing properties, um, like I told you, there's a lot of people that want to buy. They're like, yeah, just let me come through and see it right now. Mm-hmm. I just want to see what it looks like, and I'm like, you don't want to see what it looks like because it's going to scare you away. <laughs> people were so visual. Yeah, if you see a house that's down to the bare bones, the average citizen is not going to be able to visualize mm-hmm. what it's going to look like. As a finished product, it's very true. People, yeah. people are very visual. I like you gotta at least wait till I get the kitchen cabinets. <laughs> like once the cabinets are in, the drywalls up. There's a, there's at least one coat of paint. The floors are in. You can see it. But like the houses that like when I do like rehabs on, they're over a hundred years old. There's black soot everywhere because they they had coal burners and 
it's just not a, a sight to see that people can't say, comprehend. You're not gonna be able to say this is gonna be my home one day. You're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna look at it and just like I'm I'm running away. I don't want anything to do with this. Take me off your buyer's list. That's a, that's the same situation I find myself in a lot of times when I get listings. Is yeah. you know people are so against doing things to the house. These it, just minor stuff. Just minor things like you know old carpeting that's been in there from the 70s why not just rip it out spend two grand and make it look presentable because yeah. pe people don't realize how visual people are they just think oh i'll vacuum it it'll be fine no. like it, it if someone comes in they smell that new carpet and they see a new carpet sometimes it's a world of a difference it makes a you know difference. and um you know you're not people people need to understand you're not going to recoup all of what you spend you're going to get a percentage back yeah. but i can always break it down for you and let you know how much you should be recouping back because you put new carpet into place mm -hmm. and if that number makes you feel comfortable then go ahead and do that yeah. um and, and you know a lot of people too don't don't want to spend the time to do it they don't want to make calls they don't want to set appointments up that's that's something i will do for you i will make the phone calls i will get it all set up other a lot of agents ain't going to do that for you i try to take that everything out of your hands that you're that you're going to be juggling and if i can just take it and put it in mine i'll do that so you can make them their money and if you go on that's it uh, so do you ever feel like some of these situations that the sellers would make the repairs but they don't have the money to make it sometimes that's a situation um a lot of the situations i've been in I don't think that's been the case, but I have been in a few situations where, yes, I, I don't think that they would have been able to put any money in the home. And if in, in that situation, when I know that, and I'm thinking of a few off the top of my head, um, you know, I try to do my best to make sure the place is presentable. Um, you know, if I have to have a, somebody come in and clean the place professionally, nice I'll do that. Cleaner. Yeah, nice cleaner. And I, and I have taken that uh, cut out of my pocket before a couple of times just that's because. Yeah. Has anyone asked you to pay for it, the repairs? Nobody's ask me directly um, but if I know somebody's in a situation um, like I personally sold uh, a friend of mine that I went to high school with um, her house okay. last year so she was in a situation where she didn't really have any money to put it into the house it was gonna be as is so you know in a situation like that I would go out of my way to make sure it was ready because I know it's gonna sell you know based on the area and things like that um, you know if I can get it as presentable as possible uh, you, I feel like in real estate, you definitely got to trust your gut feeling. Sure. And sure. When your feeling says do it, do it. This is true. Yeah. yeah, sometimes you really do get a hunch and you're just like, let's do it. That's what, when I, when I call expireds, um, like my strategy when I call expireds, I, I kind of do like a little vetting process before I actually make the phone call. Like I look at the listing, I look through the pictures, I see if it was withdrawn off the market at one point in time. So then when I, when I make the phone call, I feel a little more confident in, in like knowing kind of like the basic situation, whether or not the, the actual seller pulled it off the market. You know, if I know that, then I'm going to ask a different set of questions if it just expired and they never pulled it off the market. So, you know, just, I, I try to, I, I do kind of vet the properties and sometimes I won't call just based on certain things that I see. Cause yeah, if it didn't meet my criteria, cause I know it's going to be a headache or just take too much time, you know, stuff like that. So okay. that makes sense. Uh Seems like there's a lot of money in expired listings. Yeah, I mean, that's last year, that's primarily, I think I got about 80% of my business from expireds. How are you, uh, how many calls are you making a day? 
of depending on how many expireds because sometimes I'll go back and I'll go back a whole, whole year and I'll start calling expireds that expired a whole year ago um, yeah. if I run out because right now I mean with the inventory so low sometimes I'm only getting five new expireds a day um, but on average I'm probably making between 10 and 25 calls a day. No. That's real manageable. Yeah. You know, a lot it's of super manageable. want to make calls. No, it's it's intimidating. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people, they just say, I just want to make money. I don't want to make calls. <laughs> you got to make the calls. You got to put that, that footwork in because, like, in wholesale, you're making calls. People are making calls all day. I think that's what it is at the end of the day is like nothing comes easy. There's you got to put work in. You got to put the effort in if you want to see, you know, reap the benefits of the rewards. And, um, you know, just with expired listings in general, like if you don't, is there some, just like you said about the gurus and stuff with investing, it's the same thing with real estate agents. Like there's so many agents out there that will try to sell you programs like do this, do this, do that. At the end of the day, if you just pick up the phone and call somebody, you are way more likely to start getting business, whether you're trying to go through these programs and pay somebody a bunch of money for no reason it's, it's about it's about grinding and just doing it if you don't i feel that way too you get, pick up that phone build the connection with people that's it up. you're gonna get rejected it's gonna happen but you just gotta chalk it up and move on to the next one not not take it personally yeah but like you definitely can't take it personal because there's gonna be times where people cuss you out oh yeah take me off this list i'm not selling yep you just gotta kind of like push to the side and call them back. That's the it. There's no call them back next week. Caught them in a bad time, that's all. Yeah. The situations change. Uh, you might be facing something now that situations might be different in a month or two months from now. You might not want to sell right now, but you know, as hardship happened, that's forcing you to sell. And I might just have called you on the right day at the right Very time. Very true. And you're like, hey, I actually want to sell. Yeah. And pe people change, so I feel like that. It's always good to follow up. That's a good point to make too. Is yeah, don't make that call one time and you leave a voicemail and never call back again. Yeah. You gotta keep you gotta keep beating down the door um, until you really come to a conclusion that that's not gonna lead you somewhere. Yeah, I think I follow up in my company. We do at least like six or seven touches before we six or seven. Yeah, before we put it on the follow up. That's nice. Six so times. when you say put them on the follow up, you mean like uh, you do you reach out personally six times and then you put them on like a program that automatically yeah, follows up. Put them in the follow. Uh, Got leave you. Leave them a voicemail, text message. Uh, we'll just like six times. It won't be me calling. I don't make as much calls. I focus really on the sales right now. Sure. But I have somebody calling from eight in the morning to about six at night. See, that's nice. Do you have somebody in your making the calls for you? I need to get to that level. Yeah, it, it, it helps. But then at the end of the day, no one's gonna be able to make the calls as good as you make them. It's a good, very good point. So, yeah, so you gotta, you gotta it's your business, so you're gonna be a little more aggressive on the phone than somebody that's just you're paying an hourly rate to. Exactly. Yeah, just that's a good point. See how they'll take it, but then there's there's hungry people that will, you know, get on there and make those phone calls. They'll convert. Yeah. But it's it's just about finding that person. Sure. Well, just like the six times, it won't be me calling. I don't make as much calls. I focus really on the sales right now. Sure. But I have somebody calling from eight in the morning to about six at night. See, that's nice that you have somebody in your yeah. making the calls for you. I need to get to that level. Yeah, it, it it helps, but then at the end of the day, no one's gonna be able to make the calls as good as you make them. Took a very good point. It's yeah, it's like you got you got. It's wait. your business, so you're gonna be a little more aggressive on the phone than somebody that's just you're paying an hourly rate to. Exactly. Yeah, just that's see, a good point. See how they'll take it, but then there's there's hungry people that will. 
you know, get on there and make those phone calls. To start calling people. I'm very introverted. Yeah. And, um, you know, prior to real estate, you know, I, when I was working construction and stuff like that, I, I didn't really talk to too many people. You know what I mean? I my This this is um, really put me outside of my comfort zone and allowed me to just um, build my skill set up. It's you know? a big, big shift. I, I can imagine, you know, not talking to people all day and then going mm -hmm. into a business where you're forced to talk to people yeah. or you're not going to make no money. It was nerve-wracking. I'm glad that you made that change and you're able to overcome, you know, your ways because some people will be stuck in their ways and they'll be like, you know, I'm just not going to do it. That's it. That's what it is, is if you don't put yourself in a situation, you have to keep putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and that's what I've learned. You know, if you're not pushing yourself um, and you're just staying in your in your comfort zone, you're never going to grow. Not at all. So. That's, that's facts right there. Get out that comfort zone. Get out your comfort zone. So you can grow. That's it. But yeah, I feel like yeah we can uh, wrap this up. You wanna you wanna shout out your 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 business? Yeah. So for anyone that's listening, I want you guys to stop on my Instagram right now. Follow me at the underscore crib flipper, and I'm offering mentorship for anyone that wants to learn how to wholesale. If you're having any problems in real estate, just reach out to me. I got an answer for any question that you got. Nice. And if you need to buy or sell, you can reach out to me. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, just Norsborio underscore Realtor. Um, feel free to drop me a message. You know, any questions you have going forward, more than happy to help you in any way I can. That's good. EBGRentals.com if you're looking for rentals. Mm -hmm.